me tell you a little story as we get started here. Way back in 1962, a pastor by the name of James Kennedy started an evangelism program at his local church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He trained his congregation to ask people questions about whether they knew they'd be going to heaven or not. And this was his way of training his people for evangelism. So after a bunch of early success in this ministry in the, in the mid-late 60s, this ministry was then renamed Evangelism Explosion in 1972 and was launched across the globe. So today, Evangelism Explosion and its material has been translated into 70 languages and is used by over 20,000 churches worldwide. And in 2016, Evangelism Explosion said that they had reported over 10 million people professing faith in Christ because of their ministry. Now, a few years ago, a study was done using the questions that Evangelism Explosion would ask people in these evangelism uh, encounters. So in this study of Americans, they asked this question. If you die tonight, are you certain that you'll go to heaven? And the response of all Americans, okay, was 70% of people said no. They weren't sure. Now, they also asked, if you died tonight and God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And get this, over 90% of Americans gave a moral works-based answer for why they would go to heaven. 90% of us. They would say something like this, well, I've done more good things in my life than bad things, so I should probably, I think I'll make it. Or, you know, I went to church every week, most of the time, but I, I went to church more often than I didn't go to church, and so that's good, right? Or they would say something like, I, I volunteered for 10 years in a soup kitchen. Every single, uh, 9 out of 10 respondents gave some kind of an answer based on their works about why they should go to heaven. You see, today we're going to fast forward in our study as we look at the reality of heaven, and we're going to look at that moment where we all stand before God. And I think that this question from Evangelism Explosion is going to be asked of you. Why should you be let into heaven? So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. If you start at the end of your Bible and you work your way back, it's only like three pages. So Revelation chapter 20, we're right there at the end of your scripture. So if you need a copy of the Bible and you want to follow along with us, raise your hand. Love to get a copy of the Bible in your hands to follow along with us today. Revelation chapter 20, we're going to be in verses 11 to 15 today. Now this passage describes the future events after Jesus' return when God's going to judge humanity. So as we read this text, here's the important truth that I want you to take home today. This is what we're going to see as we look at this. We are judged by works, but we're saved by grace. I'm going to describe what I mean by that, and you're going to see what I mean by that, because we need to be careful about how we talk about all of those terms. But let's read our text today, and then we'll get into what this means. So Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. John speaks of this vision he has. Then I saw... A great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. 
and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the death that were in them, the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Now, friends, I hope you understand and get the gravity of this text. This is describing an event that's actually going to happen. There will be a, a judgment, and we need to understand the importance of why this will happen. So here's what I want to do. I want to examine why the judgment is critical to our theology, and then dive into this scene in Revelation chapter 20 to see how it, under, how it shapes our understanding of the gospel. So first, let's discuss why the judgment is critical. Twice in this passage, and if you go back to verses 12 and 13 in the middle of our text, twice in this passage it says that all the dead will be judged according to what they had done. In other words, they'll be held account, held to account for everything that they've done in this life. This truth actually shows up all over the Bible. It's a theme throughout the scriptures, beginning to end. There are a, a, a number of places across the scripture where this exact sentence or the same concept shows up. And I want to actually just show you the list. Look at all these passages. You see passages all the way from Genesis to Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah and Ezekiel, Matthew, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 Peter, and then a whole bunch of passages in Revelation. And they all speak of the same thing, that we will be held to account for the things that we've actually done. So what do we do with all of these passages? Let me just focus on one for a moment. Let me actually give you the words that Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus is speaking and he says this about the Revelation 20 passage we're reading today. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Okay, so what do we do with this? So many of us have been trained and, and taught, and, and rightly so, to reject anything that speaks of works. When we hear the idea of being judged by our works or that our works are, are something that could maybe earn us something, we want to reject that thought, and that's actually good. But the reality here is that we will be judged according to what we have done, and that is critical to our theology. Okay, here's the reason why. I've got four reasons why judgment based on what you've done in this life, is important. The first is that it upholds God's holiness. You see, God's perfect and pure nature and character require that anyone who would be in his presence must be pure and blameless. It's like oil and water. They do not mix. And so if God were to somehow never actually deal with all the sin that is existing in this world it would go against his perfection and his holiness. 
and he can't have that. So judgment upholds God's holiness. Second thing is it vindicates God's people. Satan's been trying to destroy God's people ever since the beginning. Open up to the first couple chapters of Genesis. And you know what? Evil forces have been against God's people since Abraham. Judgment of Satan and of sin and of death vindicates God's people whom he wants to purify and bring into his presence in heaven. Third thing, judgment's important because it dignifies God's creation by executing justice for all wrongs that have ever happened. Think about this for a moment. If you've ever experienced injustice or hurt or pain or evil or feeling that somebody got away with something, the judgment seat of God, this passage in Revelation 20, is the moment in history where every single sin will be held to account. Every single one. I can tell you, friends, that the judgment is good and comforting in that sense because I can't imagine walking through life and feeling like there are unjust things that will never be held to account. How hopeless would that be if you never felt like there could actually be justice here? That sin would just be gotten away with and people could just walk away. Fourth thing is that the judgment provides a decisive moment for the vanquishing of evil forever, for the getting rid of it. See, in order for God's creation to be purified, to be remade, and for a new heavens and new earth to come, you got to get rid of all the stuff that's cursed. There has to be judgment on sin and justice for God's holiness. And, and, and this decisive moment in Revelation 20 is that moment where evil is forever condemned and God's creation is purified. So let me describe this scene because judgment in our theologies is crucial. Look back at verse 12 with me. Verse 12 talks about this throne room scene again. And it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. It's no accident that he says great and small. It's actually a, a play on words or it's a way of describing the fact that it doesn't matter who you are in this life. Every single one of us is going to stand on the same level ground at the judgment seat because there is no privileged place there. Great and small. If you think that there's a VIP line or that there's some kind of a, a, a first class ticket or special seating for people who've done good job in this life, that is not the case. Great and small, every single person, no matter your social class, your skin color, your belief system, or what time in history you lived, will all stand there in that same crowd having to deal and answer the same question. Now, this, this text says that the books were opened. There's something incredible that happens here. The books are a written record of every single thing that you and I have done in our life. Public and in secret. So in other words, when you get there before the throne and God's sitting there and they open the books, every single thing you've ever done is going to be read aloud from the books. <laughs> Imagine what would this would be like. Okay, we talked about in Revelation chapter 7 that 
because of those who have been washed in the blood of the lamb and made their, their, their robes clean and white, that they, that verse, verses 15 to 17 in chapter 7 say that the rewards of the gospel are the presence of God himself, the removal of suffering, and the daily watch care of Jesus as we're in his presence. So those, that's the promise that stands there before you. Here you are at the gate. And, and, and beyond the gate is the presence of God, the removal of suffering, and the, the, the walking with Jesus day to day as he cares for you. And that answer is given. Are you worthy to walk through that gate? Because here's what happens. Your life, your decisions, your Good and bad things that you've ever done are read aloud in the presence of a perfect and holy God. Some people imagine a scale when this moment comes. Many people assume that at the judgment, there's going to be a scale. And if you've ever seen a scale where it's got weights and it can go one way or the other, that many people imagine you'll stand before God and, and you'll put your good deeds on one side and your bad deeds on the other. And as long as it outweighs on the good side, then you'll get in. That's not how it works. Because I'll tell you, imagine that same scale. If you put the perfection and the holiness of God on one side and then you put all of your deeds on the other, that's how the scale works. And I can tell you, you will never measure up. So imagine what that moment is like. Standing there and the books are opened and you realize that you're not worthy to enter heaven. How much despair would that cause? Friends, when you grasp in that moment that your sin disqualifies you from being in God's presence, you're going to understand why there's a hell. Friends, this isn't a, a very popular doctrine these days, the doctrine of hell. But our passage says that there's a lake of fire. And you know what? What's important about this and the thing that I want you to grasp is that hell is a place that's the opposite of those promises in Re Revelation 7, 15 to 17 that we looked at last week. It's a place where there is no presence of God. Instead of the removal of suffering, there will be suffering and pain. And you will not have the daily watch care of Jesus as he shepherds his flock. You see, one of the issues why people don't particularly like the doctrine of hell these days is because I think we have a bad understanding of the nature of humanity. Many people assume that human beings are morally neutral or morally good to begin with. And if we were morally good or neutral to begin with, and God would send some to heaven and some to hell, that would be unjust. But that's not the case. You see, we are... Sinners by nature and by choice. And so God is perfectly just in condemning all. You see, he's not being arbitrary or capricious. This is why it's so important that we read in this text that when the books are opened, we are judged according to what we had done. In other words, it's the choices you made that determine your destiny there. You see, we don't deserve heaven. And if you walk through this life feeling like, man, I deserve it. I just need to make sure that I do enough good in order to be able to make it. That's the wrong frame of mind. The reality is that we all deserve hell. But here's where we need to stop for a moment. 
Can I share with you some good news? Look at the middle of verse 12. As the dead are standing and their deeds are being read aloud, listen to these words. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Another book is opened. Friends, this is that moment when you realize that you're doomed and you're unworthy, that, that, that you cannot enter heaven based on your own righteousness. And here's what's going to happen. I imagine Jesus himself, he's got a book in his hands. And he comes to God the Father on the throne. And he says, the names in this book, these people are with me. And God the Father opens the book and he starts reading the names. And we're all standing there in despair because we know we are doomed. And yet there's another book. You see, in the ancient world, the role of citizens was kept on a scroll and it was kept in the king's palace. See, if you belonged to a, a nation or a city, your name as a citizen was written in the book, in the scroll. And the king kept that to know who belonged as a citizen to his city. And so those names that are written in the book of life are citizens of heaven and are God's people. Can you imagine the calling of the role for who is a citizen of heaven? Faced with the grim reality of your works that are laid out for all to see. In the presence of a holy God, the elation there will be when your name is called. Now, let me ask you, how does your name get written in the book of life? It's not by what you've done. If you go ahead just one page to Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, the very, very end of the book, Revelation 22, 14, if you want to flip one page, it'll be on the screen too. Jesus himself says, blessed are those who wash their robes. In the blood of the lamb is the implication there. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. It is only those who have washed in the blood of the Lamb who may enter. I want to read from, from Romans chapter 3, because I think Paul in Romans 3 really summarizes and describes the theology of what's happening here. Romans chapter 3 Verses 21 to 28. You can follow along on the screen. It'll be on the screen for you. Listen to what Paul says about this situation. He says, But now, apart from the law, or works, if you will, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's that moment when your, book, when your works are read. 
and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as an a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Friends, this is the good news here. Your salvation is a gift. You've nothing to boast about because it's, uh, if it was based on your works. You see, here's what Paul says, and this is what we read in the rest of chapter 3, and you go into chapter 4 of Romans. Paul says that if you were to work for your salvation, then God would be in your debt. That's how wages work. You show up to work and you punch a time card. When you get to the end of the month, you have that time card to say, look at what I've done and now you owe me. I'll tell you what, friends, the reason why works cannot work is that you can never stand before the infinite, holy, living, almighty God and say, you owe me something. That's a dangerous place to be. You will never be able to hold something over God's head and claim that you did it yourself. That's not the gospel. See, when you stand before God to be judged, if your name is written in the book of life, you'll be judged according to the righteousness of Christ and not your own. And the reason why that's important is that you don't get any of the glory. God gets all of it because it's what Jesus did for you. So you can only boast in that moment when you cross the threshold, the gates of heaven. You can only boast in Jesus. You see, friends, every single other religion on this planet, every other worldview that you will ever encounter, teaches that salvation must be earned. But you know what? Not so in the Christian faith. And the reason is important here. The reason that's not possible, that's not, what we, that's not what we hold true, is that God giving you a gift of salvation means that he maintains the glory for himself, that he's God after all, and that if we earn salvation, we could then boast in something of our own righteousness and greatness, and we cannot do that. See, the gospel brings all glory to Jesus. The second reason why that's important is because when God himself atones for our sin, justice can actually be achieved in full. Because I can tell you there are sins that you and I have done that we can never, ever make up for fully. You see, God's creation needs to be purified and remade. Peace must reign on the earth again. Justice for sin and pain and suffering must be had in full. And that's why God needs to do it. See, here's what's important. I want you to understand two terms today. Mercy and grace. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. That's what's here in Revelation 20. When your works are read aloud, 
you're going to say, oh, I know what I deserve. Mercy is when God does not give you what you deserve. But you know what grace is? Grace is a gift that you don't deserve. Grace is giving you something that you don't deserve. And when you cross that gate to enter the new heavens and new earth and be with God in his presence and without suffering and with the daily watch care of Jesus, you are going to understand as you had your works read aloud how you walking through that gate is purely a gift you don't deserve. So let me ask you a question again that we asked at the beginning of our message today. Why should you be let into heaven? I can tell you the only Christian answer is only by the righteousness of Christ. It's only because I live by faith and have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. My works condemn me, but I'm saved by the work of Jesus. That's the answer. It's the only answer. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go to a time of communion. Because at the communion table, the Last Supper, the elements of the bread and the juice are a tangible reminder of the only way to be saved. Jesus' broken body and his blood that was shed. I want that reality for us to contemplate how unworthy we are to deserve it and the reality that our names are written in the book of life purely by God's grace. I want that reality to sink in today in a fresh way. So let's pray. Lord, we, we recognize and we say out loud, when we look at this scene of what's going to happen when we stand before you, we know we're unworthy. And so today we claim alone the righteousness of Christ. It's only because you paid it all, Jesus, that we can ever stand before you in your presence. And so, Lord God, as we've talked about the reality of what heaven will be, a recreated and remade and purified new heavens and new earth, that we will live as your created creatures in your image, in your presence, administering creation in a, a, a way that glorifies you, Lord. We know that that's only possible to enter that rest because of the blood of Christ. So wash us clean, Lord God. And I pray that for anyone in this room who is not surrendered to Jesus, is still on that treadmill of trying to figure out if my works are going to make it or not. For anyone in this room who feels like my life is this scale or this balance that if I just outweigh the good from the bad, then I'm going to make it. Lord God, I pray by your spirit you would break down that lie. That you would convict. That you would let us confess that we are unworthy no matter what we would ever do. We could never earn it. That God, we could never put you in our debt. That you would somehow owe us heaven. I pray that that truth of only entering your presence by your grace that brings glory to your name alone, that that would be the only thing by which we stand. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.